This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. to San Francisco. Thank you. It's great and to be here. to CIIS as well. And thank you again for being here this evening as well. Um, I'm really excited for us to have this conversation this evening. Um, I was really touched by reading your book. There's, you have this beautiful way of taking really big concepts about race, gender, sexuality, religion, and sharing them in such a personal and generous way. So, I really appreciate that, and um, it really feels like everybody needs to read this book because there's so much in there. And one piece also that stood out to me is that it almost feels like it's a parenting book, too. Uh-oh. <laughs> in, in a good way. We don't you know, need any more of those, I don't think. <laughs> Actually, we do. The conscious <laughs> ones, we very much do. Um, and I'll have some questions for you later as well, but I just appreciate how much space you create for um, your child, for Shiv. Thank you. So I wanted to start out by just asking you to maybe share a little bit what inspired you to write the book. Sure, absolutely. I think I write like many writers do to figure out what I think. Uh, it's how I understand the world around me. And it took a little bit of time. I think anyone who's a parent who's been around a baby, <laughs> a newborn, we adopted Shiv at birth. And so that the first you know year or so of parenting is so physical and visceral and like literally messy. There's a lot of bodily fluids involved. You're really tired. Um, and so once you sort of survive that pass, it gives you a little bit of time to, I think, step back and maybe look at like, oh, I remember thinking at Shiv's first birthday party, like we kept a human being alive for a whole year. Like this party is for us. Like I'm serving drinks, um, which we did. And I recommend, um, <laughs> All of that to say, at some point, I started to sort of zoom out and think about what our family sort of was and meant outside of the confines of our house, right? That for us, it's daily life. My wife, Jill, is here with me. And for us, it's life, right? It's who's going to cook dinner tonight and do we have enough milk and did we send the homework folder back and, you know, all those kinds of things. And then, but from the outside and for a lot of people, when we move around in the world, it's you know, we're the family that pushes all of the buttons, right? We're like, we're intersectionality embodied. And so when I started to think about that and honestly get some feedback from people in my life asking, asking questions and asking and saying, it would be great to hear more about this or can you share more about what this is like, um, that I started to think, oh, maybe our experiences, you know, could be a lens to talk about some bigger things. And, you know, sometimes I think the things that are so close to us can be invisible to us. They just feel normal to us. And then when you start to maybe put them on paper or zoom out a little bit, you think, oh, yeah, there is there's something here. So once I started digging, um, it turned out that I had a lot to say and um, it became a way for me to think about the again, the project of our family, which on one level is not a project, it's our family. 
And but then um, again, on another level or on a societal level or with that mirror, that parallel, uh, we are very much right in the mix of things that are being spoken about and debated and discussed and um, on a larger scale. Yeah, yeah. And um, you've kind of walked this life of the intersectionality all your life. Um, you grew up the daughter of Indian immigrants in Memphis. And you talk in your book a lot about in the beginning, like how that is for first generation um, immigrant children to kind of walk the line between two cultures. And there's one sentence that you um, wrote that says, what you do reflects on all of us. So you have to represent us well as an immigrant and a first generation child. And I'm wondering if you can just tell us maybe a little bit more about what that meant for you and how it was growing up for you. There's this acute awareness. I was thinking about it just last week. I was lucky enough to be in New York um, to do some some book events. And I flew into JFK. And it was the first time I'd flown into JFK, and which is great because LaGuardia is terrible. And... Um, I, as I was walking through the terminal, I was thinking about the fact that my mom flew in to JFK airport. It was the first time she'd ever gotten on a plane. She was 21 years old. She had been married for a year. She and my dad could not afford to come to the States together. So she sold a tea set from her literal dowry to buy, it's like an O. Henry short story, to buy his ticket. Lived with his family for almost a year, which you can imagine how much fun that was. And then got on a plane herself and landed in JFK airport, right? And so when you know that that is what your parents did for you to have the life that you had, like it's hard not to carry that around, right? And, you know, sometimes it's hard not to resent that also, right? I mean, that certainly was a characteristic of my, my teenagerhood probably especially, but that sense of, of that narrative being so close all the time. And of, especially in a place like Memphis, which I love Memphis, it's my hometown. I still go back, I still get homesick for it. Um, and it's a weird place to be brown. Um, like to be black or white makes sense in Memphis, but to be anything other than that is very strange. And so I felt very much like an anomaly and like someone who sort of had to account for her presence there. And so because there was such little representation, it was like, okay, like you can't screw up, you know? Um, you can't, you know, maybe be a regular teenager and do regular teenage things or be a goof off or whatever you might wanna do because there's that sense that you are the representation and people are gonna take whatever you do and then sort of like lockstep assign it to your entire ethnic group. Um, and as problematic as that is, right, that's very much what it felt like the, the, that sort of pressure was. and. I think my parents were certainly aware that that was unfair and, um, and wanted me to get to be a kid and, and all of that. And I had, I'm, was, I'm one of those very lucky people who had wonderful parents. Um, and it was like, yeah, the, I mean, it was clear sort of what the expectations were. There was never any doubt about what I was expected to do. And so that was just my life. That was just the world that I walked around in. And I don't even think I realized that it wasn't everyone until I was sort of old enough to kind of start hanging out with other people and thinking like, oh, you don't have this. Like you don't, um, this is not something you think about or walk around with. And so it's still something that I, 
is, is right here. And I sometimes have to fight against um, this sense of like, what does it mean to live authentically to me versus live up to some sort of expectations um, that I may or may not feel comfortable with or want to take on anymore now that I'm you know, in my mid-30s. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And you're talking about somewhat of this innocence of childhood that you're not completely aware that that's not everybody's situation. And yet, on a, I think on a visceral level, we're aware of it. Mm. Just the little looks that we get from people sure. or just how people interact with us, maybe just a tiny little bit differently. And so I can imagine that that was not easy to navigate as a child. And then also as first generation, it's your parents grew up somewhere different. They have another set of um, a culture that they bring, expectations. And so navigating that, having one foot in each culture. And you write about how um, there wasn't a lot of representation back then, um, especially not of Indian cultural icons. And navigating just that um, having this Indian background, being in predominantly white America, right. wanting to fit into something that wasn't completely welcoming you in and navigating that a little bit on your own as your parents didn't grow up. I can imagine that must have been challenging at times. I think one thing that has been encouraging for me very recently is just the extent to which the Asian American community in particular and sort of a lot of folks in the first generation immigrant community have talked about the way in which sort of whiteness was held up as the model, right, for success. And, you know, that that's for so many people what the American dream looks like, right? And um, that was uninterrogated for me for a very long time, um, this idea that there was no representation really. Um, and then this model of what success looked like, I was pretty good at it. Right. And so that was another piece, right, that I'm really aware of in terms of sort of a privilege that I have is like school worked for me. I was a, a quote unquote good student as a teacher. I'm going to put that in quotes because um, I don't actually think there's such a thing. But like traditionally, like I could play that game. And so it was like, oh, I can do this, you know, with not a lot of awareness of what that cost was. Right. Like of sort of what um, was sort of I, what I was maybe selling out on or what I was hiding or sort of um, what edges, I, see, I bumped the mic. I know I was going to do that. I talk with my hands. Um, what, what edges I was rounding off to fit inside of this model. And so, you know, I don't think my parents, again, also, I don't think they were super conscious of the fact that they were maybe modeling after sort of this very white sort of standard because that's sort of what there was, right? And that was the promise. And that was sort of, and then we did that. They did that. They did, you know, worked their butts off, traditional immigrant story, you know, nice house, two-car garage, private school, the whole deal, right? But it wasn't until pretty recently that we started having conversations about the privilege that got us there, right? And that the things that you sort of, the pills that you swallow as immigrants, right? There's been some great scholarship recently, like Deepa Iyer is one, Right, writing about, and, and Toni Morrison said this a long time ago, we should just always listen to Toni Morrison is the moral of the story, um, right? That like the, that's the bargain that immigrants make is to sort of take on anti-black racism as a way of moving up the ladder, right? And so all of that stuff was very much, like I said, uninterrogated, unexamined for me and for my parents until very recently in our lives. And so again, I'm really heartened by conversations that are starting to happen 
I was so moved a couple of years ago. Some of you may have seen this. You know, there was this big push online for folks to, there was a letter that was written sort of directly addressing sort of the older generation of um, sort of Asian immigrants, sort of parents and grandparents, um, about why it's important for us to support the Black Lives Matter movement. And there was this call on Twitter for like, who can translate this into these 37 different languages, right? And it was so moving for me to watch this happen because I think too often, especially, right? And you can think about this looking at queer history, there's a wedge that's driven generationally, right? Between sort of an older guard and a new guard. And just the new guard says like, oh, we don't need them. Like we've moved past them, they don't get it. And I think there's something like a really beautiful opportunity inside of per, perhaps Asian American culture to say like, no, we're gonna knit these two things together, right? We're gonna have these conversations. We're gonna translate these documents into the languages of our parents and grandparents and open this conversation. Because what I've found is that there's so much that my parents didn't talk to me about or tell me that they have facility with the very things that I'm still thinking about and trying to grapple with raising my own child, with thinking about moving, like you said, moving around in spaces and the looks that you get and the sort of coded messages. Like they're, they've been doing this a lot longer, right? And it's not that they haven't been paying attention, it's that there were different sort of expectations around what you could or couldn't talk about or communities or you know, access, even you think about what social media has made possible, right? So I'm, I'm really heartened and excited to be part, hopefully, of that conversation of how can we bring that wisdom into conversation with this, you know, a new generation that insists on intersectionality, which I think is awesome. And so important as well, as our world is changing in Absolutely. so many different ways. Um, you just kind of mentioned the, um, the the older generation, and I want to um, talk a little bit about your family as well, because you so generously, again, share your own personal um, experiences. And I was struck by the, um, the many layers of your relationship, in particular with your father um, as well. And... Um, how you talk about how when you were younger, you were very close with your dad. And then when we grow up, there's that transition that obviously happens. And we realize that our parents are human beings as well. Um, and surprise. They, surprise. And they come down a little bit from their pedestal. Um, but I'm curious, There, it sounds like there's a lot that happened. Unfortunately, when your dad died as well, you talk about just this... Um, all-consuming grief that you had and this knowledge that in a, in a very deep way your father loved you very, very dearly. And on the other hand, also, um, you write that when you came out that he more than your mother objected to you being gay. And so I'm just wondering, like, how did you integrate all these different aspects um, of your father? This is what happens when you agree to have a conversation with a therapist, right? Jeez, Danielle. I'm so sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> right? Shouldn't have worn eye makeup tonight. Gonna be some crying. No, it's a great question. It's a question I'm still very much trying to figure out how to answer. It's a it's a live question. I, you know, grief is another thing that I'm heartened that we are starting to talk about more culturally. We're so so bad at it. Um, I mean, we're bad at a lot of things, but we're really bad at grief and so. making space for it. And I, it defines you, I think, um, losing a parent at any age, as far as I can tell. 
regardless of the sort of the relationship with that parent, um, you know, for folks that I know in my life who had really troubled relationships with parents, that death has been, you know, defining sometimes in freeing ways, right? Um, for me, who was very close with my dad, but also had really, um, I don't know what the right word is, a complicated relationship with him, um, that death, it, it just marks you forever. And so I don't know how to separate almost anything in my life now from that primal grief. I was 23. It happened very suddenly and unexpectedly. And that, that changed me forever. And I wouldn't want it any other way. Um, it, it was going to change me. And so I've tried to be really as thoughtful as I could about how, it, how it's changed me. And so I think some of the things that for me in terms of when I think about him and my relationship with him now and how I think about learning from that grief, you know, you don't have to. It's not a requirement. People always say like, oh, you know, you're going to, it's going to teach you. And it's like, it doesn't have to actually, right? Like it could just suck. Like, yeah. right. Um, the learning and the growth is optional. Um, and it's an extra layer of sort of like work and pain and effort on top of it. And I'm sort of regardless of the grief, whether that's a divorce or the loss of a child or a friend or a, even a job that you love. I mean, there's all right. Like, um, what, what can you learn from it? What can you take away from it? Um, and so once you get sort of past the point of surviving it, and then when you can actually start to think about what you might learn or take away, for me, it had to do with, you know, what was it about this human being who I adored and who was, by all accounts, just tremendous in so many ways and a wonderful father and um, never made me, I, you know, I'm, I was, I'm an only child, right? Like never once did I ever feel like my father wished he had a son, which right. Like, and certainly in an Indian American community is like a thing, like no, nothing. Like there's, you know, he was the, like, he like made me pancakes when I got my period and was like really proud. I mean, like he just was like super woke dad for like the nineties. Do you know? Like he was, he was a feminist. He's the first feminist I knew, right? Like that was him. Um, for all of his limitations. How is it possible that that man got, became so unhinged when I came out? Like that was a question that I really wanted to explore. And then certainly as becoming a parent, right? Like that adds another layer of understanding of how easy it is to project onto your kid a set of expectations, a pathway um, to think about your child as an extension of yourself, um, of your success, of your, you know, how many times have I been in public and sort of like tightened back my shoulders when I'm like, Shiv is not being polite enough and people are going to think I'm a bad parent, right? Like in two seconds, right? You know, comes out automatically. Yeah. And that's like, because she said one please instead of two, you know, like let alone, you know, my kid is now um, on this path that I didn't even anticipate existed, right? And I think that was what was so hard for my parents um, in particular is like, they did not see this coming at all. Like they had prepared for so many contingencies, uh -huh. white boys, they were very prepared for white boys. Um, they were prepared for drug, recreational drug use. Um, they were prepared for a liberal arts degree, which I did in fact get. Um, but like white ladies, not, that was not in their register anywhere. And so, um, that just, it really threw them. Yeah. And, um, I think, again, my father felt like it was an extension of himself um, or of a failure on his part or, and, and, of, and there was deep fear as there almost always is 
um, underneath, I think, anger, particularly where parents are concerned. Um, that's often the case, and I think it was with him. And so it was it was a failure of imagination on to some extent, right? Like what he couldn't imagine for me or what he had spent so much time imagining that he couldn't imagine anything else. So I think about that a lot as a parent. Jill and I think about that a lot as parents. Um, she had a very different uh, life situation circumstances, but the same um, parental response of, this is not a life we imagine for you and can't imagine and sort of refuse to imagine. And so having both experienced that, I think we're acutely aware of the dangers of projecting onto our kid and, um, or what we need from her, right? What we need her to, to sort of do or be. And that is like an everyday sort of constant you know, and we were walking down the street today talking about stuff and trying to navigate and figure out where, how much of this is us and how much of this is what she needs and versus what we need. Um, and that's, you know, it's not a science, as you know, right? It's a, the lines get blurry, but it's the talking and the thinking about it that I think are at least the necessity to start. Um, so I think that's mostly how he shows up for me. And then he'll show up, you know, it's funny how grief is, you you know, you think you've got it, like it'll be 13 years in July, which is a long time, you know, that's, that's a long time, that's a large part of my life. And then some days it just knocks me on the floor. Um, and so making space for that. Um, and then it's been, I think, a gift for me to know and experience what that feels like viscery, viscerally, because, um, you know, Shiv has had um, grief about you know, adoption, you know, around not knowing her birth father. Um, we never met her birth father. We don't have a lot of information about him. Um, grief about not living with her birth mom, you know, and not having that relationship. Um, you know, we have pictures and we know a little bit about her. We were lucky enough to meet her. She was so generous with me and Jill, and um, but she's chosen to not be a part of Shiv's life right now. And that's, of course, a, a, a grief. Shiv has a grief response there. And so it's so easy to to want to be like, but you know what, everything's great and you have two parents who love you and let's focus on that, you know, because it it's, that's that dis, you know discomfort of, am I doing something wrong or have I failed you? And it's like, no, of course you have grief about this. And um, can I give you that space? Because I know what it feels like when I have not been given space for my grief and people want to constrain and make it okay and do that bright siding. I know Brene Brown talks about sort of empathy responses and like people want to silver line it or whatever. And it's just like, you need to go away, you know? Yes. So it's like, okay, don't do that. Don't do that to your kid, you know? So that is, you know, again, it's not a gift that I, when I would trade all of that for my dad in a freaking heartbeat and I can't, so maybe what I can do is is learn to be maybe a more thoughtful parent, hopefully, and teacher. And, and that's actually one of the moments that I really appreciated in the book, too, around, like, just this present parenting. And um, you said earlier that the, the grief is there, the learning is optional. And it, to me, 
being a therapist, um, it seems like you took that learning and you're now also so generously extending it to Shiv. And um, especially that example, um, she mentioned a few times um, Mama D, um, as you said, the birth mother that you refer to. And I think that's such an important piece because um, of course, Mama D, as you refer to um, Shiv's birth mother, is part of your family. Absolutely. And I think it's so sad how in adoption sometimes we um, we just put the birth parents to the side. Absolutely. It's very transactional. Yeah. I think our understanding of adoption. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about um, just your opening up to adoption sure. and then also adopting Shiv into your life? I learned so much. Um you know, I'm still, I still fight, I think, many default narratives. I read a lot of British children's literature as a kid, which, you know, uh-huh. I'm going to blame it for some of the <laughs> sort of like orphan narratives, you know. Um, and I think, you know, I do think we have this sort of sense of, how do I want to say this, right, that we take something negative and turn it into a positive, right? Like it's a very, we want to tie a bow on it right? Which I think, again, is a cultural sort of default pattern. And it's messy. It's not, there's, right? It's not that simple. It's very, very complicated. And everyone's experience is different. And, you know, birth parents often get pushed sort of to the side and adopted parents get set into the narrative with this sort of like saintly, you know, like, oh, that's so amazing that you did that kind of thing. Um, which is really tiresome. And, you know, there's, of course, so many race, race dynamics involved, right? The vast majority of adoptive parents in this country are white. Um, there's all kinds of statistics about what kind of babies they're looking for. You know, spoiler alert, white babies. Um, you know, there are even coded um, costs associated with what color baby. I mean, it's, it is real gross. Like, if you, you know, if you want to think about, like, sort of the legacy of racism in this country, like it's a great microcosm to start looking at. And so, you know, these are things that Jill and I learned really quickly. And for us in terms of intersectionality, right, it got extra complicated really quickly because this was pre-Obergefell. We could not get married legally. Um, Most of the agencies providing adoption services are religiously affiliated. Most of those agencies are not serving non-married couples including non-married straight couples, right? I mean, it's just so like we got a lot of layers. So we were very lucky to find a wonderful agency who made it their mission to serve um, non-traditional families, which included single parents, same-sex couples, and non-married straight couples. And in that experience, you know, again, there were all these layers of stereotypes and assumptions about that it was very unlikely that we would be matched with, um, you know, a black birth family, um, which even though that that's what happened, right? So then I had to confront my sense of like sort of this internalized narrative about how homophobia is more pervasive in certain communities of color, right? You just, just, it is all of it, all of it mixed up together. And so it was a very humbling experience. It was a, I'm so grateful, you know, we joke about this a lot in our family that, you know, I wish everybody had to fill out the forms we had to fill out before they became parents. Um, (laughs) And it's actually become a thing in my friend group. I have a copy of the document. It's called the Autobiographical Instrument, and it's many pages long, and it's all of the questions from how are you disciplined as a child to how do you handle stress in your marriage to, I mean, it's all the things. 
and each of us had to fill it out and submit it. And it ended up being a great tool for me and Jill. We filled it out separately. And then we sat down across the kitchen table and went by answer by answer. And it was great. You know, like it's, you got to talk about that stuff. Preferable not to talk about it at three in the morning when you have a crying baby, (laughs) right? And so it's become a thing in our friend group that people, someone gets pregnant and they're like, will you send the autobiographical instrument? Great. (laughs) So we've had friends on their honeymoons, like doing the questions and stuff. You're probably saving a lot of relationships as well by having them look at it. It's a service we are happy to provide. (laughs) But those things, right? Again, like it's this extra legwork that you do that feels frustrating that you have to do it. And I am grateful that we did it. And I'm grateful that we really sat down and thought about, you know, you have you to basically tell them what kind of baby you're willing to adopt. It is like filling out an order form on some level. And yeah, capitalism, it's a bitch. And am I allowed to say that on the podcast? I don't know. We can edit it later. Yes. <laughs> um, but, right, it seeps down into everything, right? So pernicious. And so it, for us, it was like, okay, there's the part of us, that's the performative, like, good liberals who want to check all the boxes. But, like, are we really, do we really get what that means, you know? And are we really up for that work? Because I, you know, Jill and I both felt really strongly about, like, I refuse to bring a child into our life and then be like, we're colorblind, you know, like, it's all the same. I'm not going to do that. And so, like, am I up for this work? Do I get what this work means? Do I get the fact that the work might mean a kid who looks at us someday and is like, what the hell am I doing in this house? You know, am I going to put myself in situations where I'm really uncomfortable? Am I going to learn the stuff that I know that I don't know, that I know that I need to know? You know, all of those things. Um, That kitchen table saw a lot of action um, in that fall. And so we ultimately decided that we were up for the work, that we felt like we had the resources to do the work, and that there was no, there's, there was no way that either one of us um, could say, don't, I don't want this. There, I just, I can't do that. I, don't, I didn't know how to do that, and neither did Jill. Um, we, we just wanted a baby. <laughs> and um, nine months later, we matched with Joe's birth mom, and we met her for Mexican food on a Saturday, and it was the most awkward and sacred meal I think I've ever had in my entire life. And um, I see her face every day because she looks so much like her. And it was so hard you, in our particular case, right? What Shiv's birth mom did was was very hard for her to do. And she was very clear on what she was doing and why she was doing it. And I have deep respect for her. And um, again, you know, our family exists because of something very difficult that she experienced. And that is just knit into the fabric of our family. Like there's grief sort of at the center of that and loss. And I think it's so easy And I definitely had this instinct of like wanting our family to sort of be like everybody else's and just like, just can we make it simple? And can we just, you know, I just want it to be easy. And I want it to be like, I want to focus on the fun stuff and the, you know, the stuff, all the baby stuff. And, um, and it's, it, it was very clear to me very quickly that that would be unfair to everyone in the narrative, but most especially to Shiv. And so 
I have, you know, that's something I have to remind myself of all the time. And I think it's a good practice, right? Um, remembering that, uh, Jill was saying this the other day, right? That our child does not belong to us. And um, we are responsible for caring for our child and we love our child and she is her own human being. And she's gonna, let me tell you, we have learned very quickly, she is gonna do what she's gonna, right? She has a will. And so to not, how do you not grasp on so tightly and cling so tightly? That's the trick, right? So we're only, you know, almost seven years in. So, you know, so far I think we're doing okay, but. It sounds like you're doing more than okay. Well, can you put that in writing? Can, can you call Shiv? We have a podcast and She's a now. teenager, yeah. You can play this to her, her to you. in 20 years. <laughs> Um, you're just touching on so many different things that I deeply appreciate. And um, just in reading your book, I could so often viscerally feel you. And as I'm having this conversation with you, I can just see it and I can now understand um, what you're writing about and how I had so many feelings as well as I was writing the book. And again, there's been a few moments where you've talked about very conscious parenting. So I just want to let you know that again, that Again, creating that space um, for Shiv to have her feelings about all of this, to not have to make it pretty that like, oh, but you have us, you have two moms and it's all going to be okay. And how so often that is done, thinking that that's in the service of the child and yet it, it's not. It takes away the experience of having feelings. And, um, and one thing you mentioned is... Um, which I can imagine is that it can sometimes also be very exhausting. Like, like you said, it's a lot of work that you have to do being an intersectional family. And there was one piece that stood out to me as I was reading that you write, um, it's exhausting to have strangers view your life as an opportunity for an educational experience. The message it sends is that you and your family don't make sense to me. You need to explain it to me. You owe me an explanation. And it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm actually touched just as I'm reading and I'm having this conversation with you and can just, yeah, understand how that must be exhausting at times. It's a kind of entitlement, I think, this idea that, you know, we should be able to um, read or code what we see, right, and sort of process it in lab with labels or with language that we understand. And so, you know, and I understand too, I understand, I think, you know, on a very lay person level, like I, enough of sort of brain science that like, I, I get that we're wired that way, right? Like I know that it is not always a conscious thing, right? That we, we identify and categorize and that's what our brains are made to do. It's just not very convenient for like 21st century civilization. Uh, so many things about biology, not super convenient as it turns out for what we're trying to do these days. And so I know for me, it's interesting to kind of juxtapose, like I think it's really kind of beautiful when I see a group of people who clearly sort of love each other and are connected and I have no idea what the connections are and I can't, like I'm, I'm good with that, probably because I come from a family where that's the case. But there's this sort of this other impulse of like, I'm really uncomfortable with this, like that I can't make these things fit together and I want to be able to. And I think part of the, issue with that, again, it's very normal impulse and I don't think it's like a wrong or bad impulse. I think some of the fallout of that impulse that we don't always talk about or see is that we limit our sort of 
imagination about what a family looks like or what a group of people who are having dinner together could be, right? Or, I mean, gosh, even if we talk about, you know, I'm thrilled that almost five years ago we got to get married, you know, next week is our anniversary. And so, um, thank you. We were like, not going to wait. We we're like, you passed the decision. We're going, let's do this before you change your mind. Um, and our notions of love, right. And, and are so limited too about, um, you know, that, that what that looks like. And, you know, queerness has always been about expanding and troubling that notion, right? Like where's the room for friendship? Where's the room for um, platonic love, where's the room for non-monogamous love, right? Like all of those things, right? I think again, when we feel this sort of deep sense of like, I need to know how these people are in relationship and what the labels are, it means that we just create less space for, um, what things can be and when, what things can look like. And I think there's lots of very just sort of like soft, almost even low level costs to that in terms of, I mean, I see it in my classroom, right? I teach high school and even just like, I think about like affection between teenage boys, right? Like it's not that they don't want it, like you, it's right. Like, or that they don't feel it, right? It's how much space we give them to express it. And what we imagine is possible again, in terms of sort of what love is and what it can look like. Um, I think about gender expression, like particularly, you know, for our kid or for all kids, right? And like, how many times does a toy get pulled out of some kid's hand and they're told that they're not allowed to play with it, right? And again, like you can't quantify that sort of, and it, you can't trace what would have happened if it had gone differently. But I think we all have had enough experience to sort of imagine what could change if we didn't feel so obliged to sort of label um, or know immediately you know, what categories you belong to or, you know, you, I mean, I'm sure you can relate right to this question of like, what are you, you know, like, tell me your background, you know? And again, like I, it's not a bad question. It's not always a bad impulse, you know? And, but, but again, like, why do why does it matter? You know, sometimes in some contexts it does matter. And it maybe because I want to speak German with you. I don't, because I don't speak German, but if I did, right. But, but sometimes when I'm in the grocery line behind you, I don't need to, right. Like, why does it matter? And so those are the questions to me where I'm like, what is this impulse about? And then again, like sort of what damage does it do when we insist on like needing to know? Um, I think about that a lot. I'm still not sure what the answer is, but I think about it a lot. Yeah, thank you. And also, again, that it's then um, our responsibility or your responsibility as a family to have to explain that and, again, how exhausting that can be. And um, it makes sense. Our brains are trying to make sense and we categorize and um, it's, I think, for our safety and I think we over-categorize very often too. And um, and you've just mentioned that now, but also in your book, like how language is very important and how much it forms us. And I actually wanted to touch base with you, especially also in your anniversary coming up, is the word wife. And you talk about how there's kind of been a journey for you around that word as well. And again, yeah, how language is... Yeah, out on that one. Um, I hated that word for so long. Just hatred in my heart. Um, it creeped me out. I think, I mean, I'm still creeped out by certain sort of aspects of like, like that whole wife me up thing, hashtag the wifey, like I can't, do, I can't do any of that. Can't do it. Not going to do it. Um, really uncomfortable. Um, but I think, you know, what it represented was 
Like on, on one hand, it's just so convenient. Like you say the word wife and people know what you mean. And, you know, it's one of those, again, it's like a low level sort of piece of privilege that so often sort of goes unseen or unacknowledged. That like just figuring out what do I say when someone asks me who Jill is, you know, before we were married, right? Or like, do I, do we go, do we out ourselves in the Uber ride? Is it going to be worth it? Are we going to get grief? Is it going to be uncomfortable? Is it going to be unsafe? Right? Like there's all of these sort of layers to that. And, but just the language piece, right? Like wife is just a kind of a universal and so, you know, before we were married, it was like, okay, do I say partner? Well, sometimes people think you mean business partner. Um, so then you have to clarify. Um, and then like spouse, I don't know, it's just kind of clinical. I don't love it. Um, and then, you know, then people, you know, would suggest all kinds of things. Someone once told me that I should call her my beloved. And I was just like, <laughs> okay, no, I think that's a little much. Um, It'd be very San Francisco. It would be, yeah, that's true. Maybe here I would be able to get away with it. Um, It was just like, "Mm, uh, that's a little intimate. You know, so all of the, again, it's just like, it's a simple thing, but it's not simple, right? When sort of people are not expecting you, your family or you or your relationship or whatever. And so, you know, we got married Jill proposed via text message, the most romantic text message of all time, (laughs) Um, five years ago yesterday um, when we heard about the decision. And, you know, we had been together 13 years at that point. And so, you know, you know, and people, a lot of people said, like, you've always been married and now you're illegal. And it's like, actually, we haven't. Right. Like, that's the thing. Like, I get what you're saying and I get what you mean. And I appreciate the dignity that you're sort of and like we didn't have those pieces of paper and you can only say that because you did, you know, or you opted out of not having them, you know, because your marriage would become common law after a certain period of time, you know, or all that. And, you know, especially as people who, you know, Jill it was diagnosed with cancer before Shiv was born, before we applied for adoption and thankfully has been cancer free for over seven years now and we're very lucky, but Going through that experience, right? Anybody who's been at the hospital bedside of someone they love knows how just like deeply terror-inducing that situation is. And then any queer person, right, who who has read stories about people being denied access to their loved one or not been able to make be able to make medical decisions or having a family member, a biological family member, sort of swoop in and say you're not authorized to, you know, all of those things, right? Like that we didn't have those protections. You know, we had as much paperwork as we could muster, but we didn't have a marriage license. And you know, a marriage license, just like, Joel calls it the drop-down menu, right? Like all these things just like uh, immediately happen and you don't even have to do anything. You know, you just like wave the marriage license. And so from that angle, and then as parents, you know, we had to adopt twice. I had to adopt as a single person. Um, We were advised for Jill not to come to the courtroom with me when I did that. And then we had to pay for a second parent adoption at a, at a different courtroom that was much more friendly and very welcoming. And, but we drove to San Antonio to do that. Heads up, you may have thoughts about San Antonio, but they actually do more same-sex second parent adoptions than like almost anywhere else in the country. Pretty cool. Their family courts are wonderful. They were great. It was wonderful. And like it cost us some extra cash, you know, and like some heartache. 
And so having gone through those experiences, it was like, you better believe I'm getting that piece of paper, you know, and, you know, we're going to make it mean what we are going to make it mean. And I get that it is problematic. And I get that marriage equality is not the end all be all for our community. And I feel that more than ever now. Um, you know, how many people sort of be like, well, you're done, you know, good job. You can get married now. It's like, okay, yeah. And, you know, black trans women are being murdered and queer kids aren't safe in school and, and, and I'm, I can still get fired from my job for being gay. You know, don't get me started. And that piece of paper and the word wife, right? Like to not have access to something for so long and then to have it, like to stand on a, like a, like a, a courtroom, right? With a judge and say the words and do the thing. It, it was a thing that we had, I don't think we, I had never even imagined it because it didn't even feel feasible. And so maybe it is kind of a sellout thing, but um, I'm just, I throw that word around all the time. I'm like, have you met my wife? This is my wife, Jill. It's my, you know. Um, let me call, I'll, I'll, I'll check with my wife. Um, I'm just going to use it and just be, I'm going to be annoying about it. And that's just what there is. So. I love it. And I love that you included it in your vows as well as you write. We did. She, she, and yeah, Joel and I wrote our vows and we did. We included the word wife. Um, and there's something, again, about queering, right? Like reclaiming something and making it ours um, and doing it differently, providing sort of a different way of doing things. We joke a lot that um, right below uh, the, you know, the free and guaranteed birth control, the second best perk to being in a same-sex um, relationship is like not having to deal with these like centuries of rigid gender roles that, you know, having, I'm 36. And so, you know, lots and lots of my friends have done this, you know, traditional like get married, have babies kind of thing. And the the bullshit just starts flying around, you know? It's like all these liberated people, thoughtful, whatever. And then all of a sudden it's like, I'm sorry, what? You know, like it is amazing to me the extent to which people just fall into these default traps, yes. right? Of like, I'm going to go provide and work 12 hours and I'm going to stay home with the baby. You know, it's just like, again, people can choose that. And I am like, that is not a judgment. It's when people are clearly not choosing it, right? That I'm just, it's like, did you all fall on your head? Like that stuff is real, it's so strong. And so as, a, as queer families, I think we have an opportunity to sort of be like, okay, it doesn't have to look like this, you know? And we're, we, we get to play more, right? With sort of what those roles look like and how things show up and who's tracking doctor's appointments and who's, you know, showing up to whatever. and. Um, what parenting means or can look like and what um, a, married, a married relationship looks like if that's what people are choosing. So that feels a little bit like an opportunity, I think, and it's been really fun to watch. I think in the literary world, right, there's been more and more writing, I think, from queer authors um, and queer parents about their experiences, again, sort of reinventing the wheel a little bit. I'm just appreciating how um, how honest and how generous you're sharing again your experience and also just how honest you are with Shiv around 
almost everything, like race and um, gender again, too. And I was um, also just really struck by how you were talking honestly with Shiv around race. Um, you write in your book that um, a few years ago you took a trip to Oregon and um, there were some experiences there where um, you ex experienced racism and microaggressions. And um, Shiv was playing on a playground and um, some child said, black boys can't play here. And then a little later you um, shared an experience where um, Shiv was standing in line to go on a carnival ride and the attendant um, just kept making Shiv wait. And there was no apparent reason because Shiv was very patiently waiting in line. And, um, and I just, like, I had my own mama bear come out as I was reading this going like, what are you doing? Like, I wanted to go up there and I wanted to crawl into the book. And, you and like, Jill both, yeah. <laughs> and just be like, back off. And I just am so appreciating how two things, um, I have a first question and a follow-up question to it. Um, how do you engage with your own feelings? And um, there's a part of me that just wanted to march right in there and be like, you can't treat my child this way. And I feel like you, again, take your feelings, you're with your feelings. It doesn't feel like you deny your feelings. But then you, in both of those situations, it felt like there was an um, I, I hate to use the word educational, but it was a learning experience for the other person as well and not a shaming experience in a way. And I really appreciated that. And I was curious, like, how do you hold your or be with your feelings? Well, thank you um, for saying that. I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, it doesn't always look like that for sure. Um, there are times for, and I think this is where I have to fault, fight a default sort of polite good girl training that maybe is immigrant and Southern and female, right? All of those things where I'll just sort of like slink away. And I think for me anyway, and I don't want to like essentialize parenthood, but, but when it's my kid, it feels different. It's one thing when it's me and, you know, sometimes I'm, I still wish I had done things differently or said things differently. I'm like the queen of like the catchy comeback five minutes later. Um, but when it's my kid, right, it, it is different. And it doesn't, in terms of sort of modeling, right? Like it may feel really good or it seems like it would feel really good to sort of march in and, you know, do whatever. I think, you know, this is something Jill and I talk about a lot is that this is where our racial differences come into play in terms of how we've been socialized, right? Like it doesn't feel safe for me to march in and like read anybody a riot act. Um, it may be feel more safe for Jill to do that. And it may be more of her sort of default. Um, she's also very mama bear in a way that I find super endearing. Um, but right. Like, so we negotiate that space. So it's, I think it's one thing when it's both of us with Shiv or when it's just Jill with Shiv or when it's just me with Shiv, right. Those dynamics all look very different. And so in the cases where in those, the first case, it was just me with Shiv. And so, and we were not somewhere familiar. We were traveling, you know, all of that. And so, and it was really the first time. And it's like, it was one of those things where it's like, I knew it was coming. Like I was, it was an, it was not an if, it was a when. And so it was like, all right, here it is. This is the day, you know? And actually it was really convenient is a weird word, but my mom was with us. She wasn't with us in the moment, but she was with us on that trip. And we had a really meaningful conversation about how she negotiated those things when I was a kid. 
And she was a really meaningful resource for me in that way to think about, you know, how do you think about those situations? What do I want to show Shiv in terms of how we handle these things? I'm not going to say something's okay. I'm not going to sort of force her to conform to someone else's kind of expectation just so that we don't make a fuss. But I also, most days, right, want to believe that, you know, most people are, in that case, it felt like I could have a conversation with the person who was present. Um, in the second scenario, right, Jill and I were both there and it did not feel, I one, did feel, didn't feel like I could be rational. And two, it felt pretty, like a pretty clear aggression. And so I sent in my white wife, you know, like she stepped in, you know, and that is again, like a level of privilege that like Jill's white privilege doesn't protect Shiv. Um, but it's convenient sometimes. And so it's like those dynamics are kind of always happening. And so then debriefing that with Shiv, you know, after that's the piece that it's like, you know, that's so important and so hard and you don't know what the right words are. And um, it sucks to have to give your kid like bad news about the world, right? Totally. And, and yet I really, when I was reading that, appreciated how age appropriately honest you were. Um, and I think, especially around race, around gender, sexuality, religion, I think it's so important to have that honesty with our children. And I think, I think part of it is also that, like from a privilege, often um, white parents don't have to talk to their children about race. And so as a brown parent, um, you have to talk about race um, much earlier. And I just really appreciated how honestly and age appropriate, again, you helped Shiv understand the world. And you actually reference um, one of this American Life podcast with W. Kamau Bell and how he too talks in that podcast about like struggling um, on how to talk to his two daughters who are mixed race about race again. And so just appreciating um, how you're doing that. I think a lot about, even for me again as an adult, but with my students, with people in my life, what a bomb it can be to just have someone else say, like, I saw that, and yes, it was what you think it is. You know, whether that's um, sexism, racism, homophobia, um, you know, able-bodied privilege, fat phobia, you know, we, we could go down the list, right? But just to have someone say, like, I saw what that person did, and it was not okay, and you're not crazy, you know? Because I think about what a powerful tool in a really sinister way, like gaslighting has become in our culture, right? To the to look someone in the eye and say, like, you made that up, you know, or that's not what happened. Or, you know, you're just playing identity politics or whatever. And so I, I think about this a lot in my classroom as a teacher too, because, you know, honestly, I don't have a lot of good answers at this point. Um, I have a lot of questions and I have a lot of, I have a lot of bad news, right, about the world that I think it is essential for them to reckon with and face. Um, but to be able to tell the truth about things and to just get, and to get up and say, right? Like, this is how, this is what this is, right? Like when we look at this, this is what this is. And that that isn't everything, but it's something and it's often a place to start. And I think in parenting with Shiv, to be able to say, like, you didn't imagine that. That lady was being, you know, unfair. And probably it was because of your skin color. And that really sucks. And I wish it weren't that way. But unfortunately, that is how it is for some people. And 
I can't fix that, right? But I can stand with you inside of that. And so, um, again, I don't know what the, you know, there's no sort of like that desire, right? To like want to make it better and to, to t- make it go away is so powerful as a parent. But I do think my experience as a teacher has taught me so much about how we don't, that keeps kids from developing the tools that they need um, to reckon with the inevitable hard things that happen. And also, again, you mentioned gaslighting and just how, in a way, it's almost a little bit of gaslighting of children as well and their own experience and um, just their understanding of themselves, of what's happening around them and to learn how to navigate that as well. Otherwise, it feels almost like they have to internalize Internalize. that or hide it or push it away and um, just on so many levels you're so honest with Shiv and also again creating so much space for Shiv's experiences especially also around gender and um, you and Jill have made so much space for Shiv, Shiv at any point to explore her own gender expression and um There's actually an example um, that I'd love for you to talk a tiny little bit more about is um, where Shiv wore a tutu to a Nutcracker performance. Mm -hmm. And you write, "Um, I thought a lot about the importance of people seeing my black son in a tutu of what his presence creates and makes possible. And it just really, it stood out to me. And I'm just wondering if you can say a little bit more of like what that meant for you as well. It's, it's a journey that continues. It's been a journey, you know, Shiv was born and, and gender was assigned male and, and up to the point when sort of the book was submitted and published, Shiv identified as male and we were using male pronouns for Shiv. And then about, it's been almost a year now that Shiv has um, identified as female and is using female pronouns. And so in the, you know, the book as it is, right, is written um, in a period of time when we were referring to, to Shiv as our son or as male although very clear that there was gender fluidity there and um, all of that. And so it's one of those things, I think, particularly in that space, because it was the ballet, right, which is um, sort of very, often very white and sort of there's a lot of kind of class elements at play and sort of who belongs there and who that space is for and about that, you know, again, expanding our imaginations, right, of what we think of when we imagine a black boy, right, or a black child. And um, it's been, you know, a big conversation for us in terms of intersectionality, right, that, you know, yes, we're having lots of conversations about gender nonconformity and uh, fluidity, and yet so many of the examples that we see, particularly with kids, are mostly white kids, right, and white kids who um, often have a lot of class privilege sort of um, that parents can negotiate and things like that. And so, uh, you know, another dynamic for us is that Shiv, Shiv's physicality, like Shiv is physically just larger, right, than a lot of kids her age. And so, you know, it's like the sort of the cuteness factor that often gets assigned to certain things, right, is not necessarily that something that she even has access to anymore. Like she walks around in the world like a 10 year old, you know? And so how do we give her some space to be a kid? Right. Um, and you know, people want or expect her to, to act older or be able to do, I mean, you know, she's six, you know, she'll be seven next month. Um, how do we give her that space to explore? And, um, 
at the same time, be really clear about the realities of what it means to be, right, for her now, right? Sort of this, um, you know, a, a black female in the world um, negotiating, you know, her gender identity. And so I think we're still very much, that's a very live conversation for us. Um, we try to, I think, employ the principles that we've been employing all along um, when with raising Shiv. When Shiv was born, we chose sort of four tenants um, or sort of four, I guess, aspirational goal points um, or goal posts. Um, we wanted to raise a kid who was brave, um, kind, creative, and competent. And we have those up on the fridge. We're like those people. Um, <laughs> and it's really useful in the uh -huh. sense that like, right, like I think this sort of this thrust of modern parenting is like, did you buy the essential oils that were sourced responsibly? Like, did you, blah, you know, like, are you, blah? and it can, it can be, again, I know that sounds like, and it is a very privileged conversation for sure. And it's coming at you like all the time. And so it's like, all right, we're not going to be able to do everything. So we often check ourselves against those sort of four sort of positions. Like is, does this sort of matter in terms of those conversations. And you know what, like whether my kid's wearing a tutu or not, like has nothing to do with like those four. And so that was a pretty easy opening, I think for us. Um, it also, I think helped that both of us fought with parents, particularly our mothers about clothing and hair. And I don't know if anybody else also had that experience. And it was like, all right, that's not the hill I'm gonna die on. Um, and again, my experience, I mean, I'm with teenagers most days all day and, you know, you gotta have some clout for the big stuff. So, you know, it became really clear really quickly that, you know, Shiv's interest in appearance and dress and hair was not just about dress and hair, right? But it was very much an identity expression and a piece of self-expression. And so, you know, in the way that all of our relationships take us to places we maybe never thought we would go. I'm now like a fairly decent corn rower. Not, I would not say good, I would say like passable. Um, Jill spends many hours on YouTube watching videos um, so that we can respectably and not breaking the bank do Shiv's hair. Um, and, you know, in thinking about what Shiv needs, we think about the kid that we have. Um, right now, like who is this kid? What do we? What is she showing and teaching us about who she is and what she needs? And that's a moving target for sure. Um, and again, such a beautiful example of um, conscious parenting and being present to the child that you have in front of you versus the child you might have imagined or the child you would have imagined that fits a certain gender, which again is very binary. And I'm, I'm so loving this conversation. And I thought when I was reading your book that we should have an hour for each one of your chapters. <laughs> I um, think these people will get hungry. So. Yes, very much so. We've been talking so much about privilege and how privilege can make us blind to so many different things. And especially also um, privilege gives us this way of feeling comfortable at the expense of other people having to feel all the other feelings then too. And so I'm wondering just um, what do you want people to know about privilege and learning to take responsibility for their own biases? And that could probably again be a three hour conversation, Absolutely. but just a few pieces maybe. Sure. You know, what I feel like I've learned and I'm continuously learning is that 
you know, it's it's the action that matters, right? Like I, I'm entitled to my feelings and I think that they're they're very real and valid. And but I try to process those sort of privately because I think um some often we get sort of tied up in sort of feeling whatever feelings we have about our privilege that just kind of makes more mess for other people. Um and so you, you have to take responsibility for those, I think. And you and it is important to process and it is okay, right, to have complicated feelings, to feel things that you're not proud of, to think things that you feel are shameful, right? Like, and and for us to be able to say that out loud, right? Like, again, in this sort of, this weird culture we have that's, you know, on the one hand, I think it's so important that we're calling out things that have long been needed to call out, right? And then I think sometimes we go way to the extreme and we think we look at sort of cancel culture and we look at people who, you know, when they apologize, what they're doing is lying, you know? <laughs> but that's what we sort of demand from them. And it's like, what if people could just say like, you know what, I am clearly a racist and I'm gonna work on it, you know? Cause like, hi, we all are, you know? Like we're swimming around in this mess and there is, none of us are immune from it. None of us, we are all complicit. And so I think for me, starting there with, I, I, am, in, I am complicit and it may be really uncomfortable and I don't like it and I don't wanna be complicit um, and I wanna feel morally righteous um, and better than other people. And like, that is just not, in this world we live in, not really an option. Um, unless you wanna put your head in the sand, right? Which is a choice that some people make, right? Um, so starting there and then, you know, like doing what you can. Um, I think being in conversation is so important. Um, learning to listen, um, and really listen, right? Um, not listening for like what I'm going to say in response, um, but really listening and being with, and even being able to say this conversation is making me really uncomfortable, um, consuming media that wasn't made for me. That's been huge for me. That's been really, really helpful for me is, again, because of the internet and social media, we have access to so many things, right? So if I'm reading something that was written or curated from a very different point of view, that's a very private way for me to um, confront a bias without, again, like throwing it all over someone else um, to read and say like, wow, this is making me really uncomfortable. I've never thought about this. Or to look at images and think like, mm, this is the first thing that comes to mind, right? Like how can I, can I keep coming back to these images? Can I, right? And so again, right? Like we, you know, most of us have things that we've got to do to like get through the day, right? And so I think we have to give ourselves permission to do what we can um, and to choose it, right? Um, and to not turn away um, and to not make it about um, sort of a sense of like guilt or wrongness, right? Because that is just is not a very productive place to be in. Um, you know, we, we all kind of got to where we are, however we did, and here we are and sort of you know, now what can I do? And who are the people sort of around me that I can engage with? I think it has to start with relatedness. Um, and I think that's a way to not exhaust people, right? Is like, if you're genuinely already in relationship with someone, that's a place to engage in conversation and listening. Um, and then just, you know, for me, it is really about humility on some level, right? Um, not on some level, but like on a deep level, right? To just bear that in mind and to know that I'm, there's certainly blinds, I'm never gonna find them all. I'm always growing. 
Um, there's always going to be more stuff to learn. And I, that's like the teacher and me. Um, but I think it's really true. And I think if we can show up in that space more often than not, I think people of good faith are willing to engage with each other. Thank you so much Thank for you. this conversation this and for coming here. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you again for coming out to CIS Thank this Thank you. Evening. And thanks to everybody for coming out tonight. I really appreciate yeah. it. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu podcast.